Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slave Political Gab Fest for August 4th, 2016, the You Can Get the Baby Out of Here edition. I'm Emily Bazelon. I am a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. Does David usually say where he works? I can't remember. Anyway. Yeah, he says he's, yeah. Okay, so that was correct. And that there helping me out already is John Dickerson, who, of course, is the host of Face the Nation and the author of Whistle Stop, an amazing book about politics, past and present. If you haven't ordered it, I'm not sure you count as a true GabFest fan, and you really need to go out and do that. Hey, John. <laughs> hey, that was good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Very powerful and uh, coercive, I like that. Coercive, heartfelt, too. Um, and we are also joined today in David's absence by Ruth Marcus, who is a Washington Post columnist and deputy editorial page editor. Hey, Ruth, we're so glad to have you. Hey, Emily, I'm so glad to be back and with you this time. Yeah, and the last time, as you were just reminding me, David tried to um, incite a, a feud, division, by pitting us against each other. So really, as you were just saying, what I should do is... Um, try to get you to, you know, now compete in some way with David. But I'm not going to do that because I'm Because a... as you pointed out, Emily, that's not you. And David can just be his own judge of his own conduct. Precisely. We're, we, you and I are above that. Right, right. I don't have David's wolfish um, appetite for competition at all moments. <laughs> so I hope he's having a lovely vacation. All right. We are here today to talk about three things with you. Our first topic is going to be a kind of bouquet of Donald Trump. I felt like this was sort of the week of like, wait, what did he just say? So, of course, um, we have Trump's, I'm going to say, attacks on Kaiser and Ghazala Khan, the parents of um, deceased U.S. Army Captain Humayun Khan, who spoke at the Democratic National Convention. Trump has been going after them. He also announced that he was not ready to endorse either John McCain or Paul Ryan in their primary contests. But on the other hand, he has raised $82 million in July, close to Hillary Clinton's $90 million, so he has that good news. So we'll just have a sort of bouquet of Trump first topic. And then for our second topic, we're going to talk a little bit about gender in this election. Since we taped last week, we listened to Hillary Clinton make a pitch for herself at the Democratic National Convention. We saw on display her version of what I think of as like first-generation women's movement feminism. And then we also had Trump diving into women's issues this week by saying that if his daughter Ivanka was being sexually harassed by a person like Roger Ailes, who's been accused of that at Fox, of course, that he would advise that she switch careers or leave the company. And so Ruth and I, and maybe John too, think this is a kind of window into how Donald Trump thinks about women. And our third topic is the state of voting rights. There have been a bunch of court decisions in Texas and North Carolina and Wisconsin and a couple others kind of pushing back at restrictive voting rights provisions that states had put in place. And so we're going to ask whether the tide has turned and if it has, what exactly that means. 
All right, so let's start with Trump because, you know, that's how every conversation about politics starts lately. What do you guys think is going on here? I mean, John, is there a method to Trump getting into this fight with the parents of Humayun Khan? Is it just like he's not thinking it through? Did he very deliberately not endorse McCain and Ryan because he was angry with them for condemning his comments about the cons? Or is he just like making it up as he goes along? I, I really can't decide what I think about that. Even the wisest men cannot see all ends. <laughs> I can't. Uh, I don't think there's a gambit at play here. I think what this is, is his impulsive reaction to being attacked, his well-affirmed instinct to counterpunch that's been that's that's uh, that he thinks and he's not wrong about this has won him the the nomination in his party and then i think it's uh, the third thing is so those are sort of combined and the and then the other part of it is he doesn't back down so he's not going to apologize he's not going to kind of move on and then i think there's a we've seen this play out over the last several weeks um, which is he's not he's going to run his own race. He's not going to. So it's it's both. He has a general principle about not backing down, and then specifically with respect to people who say you need to back down so you can stay on message, be disciplined, run your campaign, and then take this opportunity to attack Hillary Clinton. Either a for the answer she gave Chris Wallace about the emails, which got four Pinocchios from the Washington Post, or the weak GDP numbers, or news about insurance companies uh, suffering under the Affordable Care Act, or um, for you know money paid to Iran for releasing the U.S. hostages. There's lots of stuff you could be talking about that you can't because you're creating this crisis situation in the um, in the Republican Party. And so I think this is all essentially impulse. And to the extent there's any strategy, it is. My voters like it when I'm tough and when I don't back down. And Emily, you, you asked whether there was method here, and I think John is exactly right. It is not method, but there is a consistent thread in Trump's behavior, and he himself is the one who has explained it to us over time. When he is attacked, he not only will punch back, but he cannot not punch back. I had a conversation with him back in March when he came to the Washington Post editorial page, and I said, well, why did you bring up at the debate uh, Marco Rubio's jab about your hands? And he said, well, I had to. And in the Trumpiverse, I believe that is actually true. He is capable at some points, if enough people and certainly if enough Trump children chide him and sit on him of containing himself for short periods of time, but in the longer term, he is not. When he is, as he said about the cons, viciously attacked, no matter how vicious his attacks are on other people, he must respond whether or not it is good politics or smart politics or long-term strategically intelligent. And is that also what explains his decision not to endorse Ryan and McCain? I mean, it struck me that he used the exact same line, I'm not quite there yet, that Ryan had used about him. And that felt like a plant. That seemed to me like he must have thought about that ahead of time, unless it just like was in his brain because he had just heard it from Paul Ryan. Um, well, I think it's no, he hadn't. Ryan hadn't said it recently. Um, right, right. So but um, it was like, I mean, it just couldn't have been. I don't know. Maybe. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't think it was coincident. I don't think it. 
it was just it was in the slight was in his brain. I he, mean, yes, yeah, I mean there is no slight to Donald. There is no insult that Donald Trump can give to somebody else. You're stupid. I think he tweeted at me after I was on John's show that I was uh, a loser and a dummy or something like that. Okay, fine, no problem. Um, Donald Trump cannot forget. And then I saw him shortly afterwards, and it was like, oh, hey, Ruth. Um, right, okay, he expects you to forget it, and that's fine. And I did. It's fine with me. Let's move on. My children were actually quite amused by that. I have badge um, of com- honor with Marcus. Com- yes, complete Dine and total dummy. Um, but there is no slight that is directed in Trump's direction that is too minor for him to forget. And so you can just you could just see how much he was enjoying um, throwing back in this kind of magnificent. I don't think it's middle school playground way. I think it's elementary school playground way. Throwing back at Paul Ryan the exact words that Ryan had directed in, towards him many months ago. And what are the implications for the Republican Party? I mean, presumably Paul Ryan's going to win this primary. John McCain looks like right. he might be. I, what? No. Yes. Yeah, no. It's just the implications don't really have to do with their individual races. Okay. It's about um, at a time of. Self-induced instability, which is where the campaign is right now. So he started this uh, back and forth with the Khan family. And what makes this different, by the way, just to to, is that you expect Hillary Clinton to criticize Trump for his remarks. You also probably expect the, you know, Lindsey Graham's to criticize him. You maybe also probably expect Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell to do, do this sort of strange twilight criticism in which they don't criticize him directly, but assert principles in press releases that have to do with the underlying issue here, which is about the the temporary Muslim ban that the Trump has put forward. So that is expected. What was what is not as expected is when Newt Gingrich, Rudy Giuliani and Chris Christie, all of whom are on the Trump team and aren't reluctant endorsers, but are uh, fully on the Trump should be president t- team to say that he's gone too far here and is being undisciplined and is giving the campaign away to Hillary Clinton, which is essentially what Gingrich said. That's something new. While all that's going on, to then pick a fight with the House Speaker, and not pick a fight, but just to do this new undermine? thing to... It does, yeah, because but it doesn't really undermine him, but to just... It opens up a new front when you're supposed to be closing down fronts and you just spent four days saying that your party was unified and you're not one of the things that gives republicans hope is that or some republicans hope uh, pardon me that are in the kind of twilight area is that paul ryan's agenda can be passed by donald trump and that trump will be relatively supine and just take what what ryan sends him and sign it and that makes them think hey maybe there's a, a possible upside here but if he's if he's in these fights with Ryan, then that kind of spoils that idea. It, and also, there's an interesting little subplay here with with Ryan Priebus, who's from Wisconsin, who's close to to uh, Ryan, mm-hmm. and who doesn't you know who doesn't think this is helpful either. I, I mean, we have to um, just pause here to appreciate the amazingness of this moment. Um, John pointed out the Gingrich, Christie, Giuliani trifecta. Gingrich told my colleagues at the Washington Post that, and Gingrich, the man who would have liked to be uh, Donald Trump's vice president, that Trump was turning himself into the more unacceptable candidate versus Hillary Clinton. You saw the spectacle 
of Donald Trump's own choice for the vice presidential spot, Mike Pence, differing with the nominee over whether he was endorsing Paul Ryan. We have never seen anything like this. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is declaring not only that he's in the position of having to declare not only that he's unified the party in the face of all evidence to the contrary, but that his campaign is unified. And I think what, you know, which it is most obviously not from And then the question is, what are the implications here? And I think there are both electoral implications and if it came to be that we had a President Trump governing implications, the electoral implications are more serious. Look at the situation, for example, of a Kelly Ayotte in New Hampshire where uh, Donald Trump is – she is running for Senate in New Hampshire. Donald Trump is down something like 15 points there in the most recent polls. She is down 10 points. She is in a state of exquisite uh, unhappiness over Donald Trump's comments, as are a number – any number of other candidates in um, close Senate races. Uh, So you sort of look to the prospect of if this kind of behavior continues, if these poll number continues, the congressional part of the party separating itself more from Donald Trump. And then the question is, how does if Donald Trump becomes President Trump, how does he govern with these people who he has been only too happy to diss and jab? And and Kelly A.I. was another one of the ones that uh, Trump criticized this week. So saying she was weak. And that's, again, not helpful in a in a tight battleground Senate race, which could determine the strength of the of or whether Republicans can keep the Senate. One other point I'd make on governing is not just bruised feelings and how will they get along, but what the the impulsiveness that is on display in and we've seen it a lot. But there are there was always this idea promoted by Paul Manafort, the campaign manager, that Trump would pivot. Trump used to say, I can be presidential when I want to be. When he picked Mike Pence, a lot of Republicans that I talked to uh, said that in the Pence pick, they saw a stability in Trump, that he recognized there was a reason to pick a certain kind of person to uh, for for tactical reasons. And that suggested to them that he was thinking along these lines, that he could be appealed to by uh, with tactical considerations in mind, which then might make him be more disciplined uh, because his lack of discipline makes it hard to run an actual campaign. All of that hope that was invested in the Mike Pence pick has now been unraveled in the last couple of days. Uh, and so when you're governing that kind of lack of discipline, uh, it means it's just going to be one dramatic moment after another. Um, and that is frightening to people who are used to trying to proceed in a more orderly fashion. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like the consistent uh, nature of Donald Trump is that he is inconsistent and erratic. And so when he does something that is slightly normal, the bar is so low that everyone, like, claps for him like a seal. And then he goes back to do, being his mercurial um, Yes, he read self. a speech from a teleprompter. Yay! <laughs> normal, <laughs> exactly. normal candidate behavior. I, I think Republicans have been telling themselves a series of what turn out to be myths about how they could live with Trump. So he did raise lots of money. He's almost erased um, the lead that Hillary Clinton had. He raised $82 million in these small online donations. He's proving himself to be fundraising juggernaut. Surely that is going to be another bragging point and another way in which he's propelled forward. And it seems like 
to me, like, it's another example of the way in which his support, these folks who some of them have probably not voted before, they're not the people in power in the Ohio or any other Republican Party. They're people who believe in Donald Trump. That's his movement. How much authority and um, power does that give him in the next phase of campaigning as the Republicans are trying to figure out, you know, quite what to do with this person they've unleashed? Well, you know, $82 million is a lot of money. And, you know, uh, maybe fundraising are the new poll numbers for um, Trump to be trumpeting. And that's, you know, that is to be taken seriously. And also to be taken seriously is something that Donald Trump has told us, uh, which is correct, which is. His voters are, they will stick with him. He could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and they will stick with him. But they are, I may not have this number exactly right, something like 13 million voters. But you don't need 13 million voters to be elected president. You need 65 million voters to be elected president. But Is I want 13 to, smaller than 65? <laughs> Even if you're Donald Trump. I think that... Um, the odds are right now that Donald Trump will not be elected president, but I think it's important for us to also talk about the implications of this campaign and his campaign uh, that the primaries were somehow rigged against him until the point when he won the nomination, in which point it was a magnificent process that wasn't rigged at all. But he's started talking in various venues, uh, including in an interview with the Washington Post, about how the general election is rigged against him. And his um, evidence on this is something that we're going to talk about uh, later on, which has to do with voting rights. I think this is a very dangerous argument. He actually made it in a series of tweets in 2012 that um, were little noticed then because who knew we had to worry about Donald Trump, where he was talking about how voters should rise up against this electoral college and in favor of Mitt Romney because the election was stolen somehow from Mitt Romney. And he called for in not just one t- tweet, but a couple of them, quote, revolution. This is a very dangerous argument because what we don't want is a losing nominee doing something that we've never seen in the history of America, which is saying that his loss was illegitimate. Go back and read the actually really quite lovely and gracious speech that Al Gore gave in 2000 after the Supreme Court ruled against him, where he talked about how the time for healing had come. It's a little hard to imagine Donald Trump giving that speech, and it's dangerously easy to imagine him giving a speech that riles a bunch of Americans up, whether they're 13 million or presumably more, and once again sets the stage for efforts to delegitimize an elected president and making our gridlock and partisanship even worse. That's not a good thing. Yes, not a good thing. <laughs> it makes us feel like <laughs> this speech. election will be with us forever. The hangover from November could continue for many months, perhaps. Um, Lingering bouquet to Trump. Yeah, exactly. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia and identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results, That's SAP Business AI. And now on to our second topic. Gender in this election is playing out in so many different ways. I feel like it's one of the more fascinating strands of 
this election season. So Hillary Clinton's speech, we haven't gotten to talk about that on the show yet because of the timing last week. She was very front and center about her feminism, about her ceiling breaking, talking about equal pay for equal work. She used a line she'd used a couple months earlier about how, you know, if being for affordable childcare, et cetera, you know, fill in the blanks of women's work causes, if that's playing the gender card, then deal me in. Got lots of applause for that. Ivanka Trump at the Republican National Convention sounded some of the same notes about caregivers and the issues of equal pay. And then she got caught up in what I imagine was not a kind of happy scenario for her this week in which Kirsten Powers, who's a columnist at USA Today, did an interview with Donald Trump where she asked, well, what if someone had treated Ivanka the way Roger Ailes allegedly behaved toward Gretchen Carlson and the other women who've complained about being sexually harassed by him at Fox? Trump said, I'd like to think she would find another career or another company if that was the case. And then Eric Trump, his son, kind of doubled down on this by talking about how Ivanka is a strong and powerful woman. She wouldn't allow herself to be subjected to sexual harassment. And by the way, you should go to human resources, um, he said, if that happens to you. But mostly just this idea that a woman like Ivanka wouldn't allow herself to be subjected to that. So now we have this, for me, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard idea that strong women aren't sexually harassed. And if they are, they should just leave their... employer or whole career and find something else to do. Donald Trump is someone who has different positions on women. In some ways, he's been enormously supportive of Ivanka. Um, Jill Filipovich wrote a really good piece, I thought, in the New York Times last week talking about the difference between Donald Trump's ideas for his wives and his staunch feminism on behalf of his daughter. And yet here we have him imagining his daughter in the work world and seeming never to have really thought about what it's like from a woman's point of view to experience sexual harassment. Um, Ruth, what did you make of that? Fingernails on a chalkboard was kind of my reaction as well. And we have to go back, actually, before his quite revealing comments to Kirsten Powers and look at what he has said since this Uh, news broke about Roger Ailes. When he has been asked previous, Roger Ailes, obviously, big supporter of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has described him as a great guy and a friend and has seemed blissfully untroubled by these very serious and really actually quite repulsive allegations about Ailes. And he is pointed out, um, as is very common, um, I think we found this in the Anita Hill hearings and beyond, he says, well, these women who are now coming out and saying that Ailes did these, Ailes did these things to them or behaved in this way to them, they said very nice things about Ailes, by the way, when they were working for him, when he had complete control over the arc of their careers. So obviously the insinuation is, though he didn't say it directly, they were obviously telling the truth about Ailes then and are somehow just all chiming in with very similar stories about garter belts and the like. Now, so then he goes out and says, and Eric Trump repeats this notion that women who deal with sexual harassment should simply um, get themselves up from their assembly line jobs or their jobs at McDonald's or their jobs in middle management and go find another career. How nice for them, how easy for them to do that, or go find another job elsewhere. This is really easy to say when you've got 
a trust fund and a triplex and a very fat bank account, it's not so easy to do for most American women. I have to say Ivanka Trump, boy, did she come in and uh, once again clean that up because her comments about this, about how no company can tolerate this, about how uh, sexual harassment is a serious problem, were totally spot on. And it's astonishing, once again, that nobody kind of got that message to Right, Donald she Trump cleans it up, on. but in the cleaning up of it, she tries to make it possible for us to elect her father as president, this person who obviously doesn't get it at all. Sometimes she seems to me like the most dangerous <laughs> member of the family. One thing that struck me about this is that it was... I think this is the first time that Donald Trump betrayed a misunderstanding of the working world in of the people he champions. So if you are in a blue collar job and you're a woman and you're sexually harassed, you don't have the op- you don't have the options. You know, you're um you can't just go get some other job somewhere else or what if you got three jobs? Uh, you know, you can't he is the tribune of uh, working class people and has so far been able to, even though he lives this, you know, there's this disconnect, obviously he flies around in a plane with his name on it, but um, he speaks for them. He is their champion and promises to be. That's that bond has been tight and, and basically fixed since June of 2015 when he announced, but this is a situation in which he, if he really knew in his bones, what, their life was like, he could never say such a thing. He just would know that that's impossible. And um, so that's what struck me in addition to all the other things, obviously, that, um, I mean, and and also it's going to, you know, his problems with college-educated white women that are, that Hillary Clinton is ahead with that group um, that Republicans have traditionally won, this will not obviously improve those things, uh, that situation. And, you know, and, and the point about college-educated uh, white women is exactly correct because you don't have to be in a blue-collar job to understand that navigating sexual harassment in the workplace and complaining about sexual harassment in the workplace is not the easiest thing to do. A lot of times um, you might just kind of turn the other cheek and um, see if you can navigate it on your own before you go to HR. Right, and can we just reject the premise, obviously, that if you're sexually harassed, the first thing you think about is, like, marching off? And that suggests that you're the one who's supposed to change instead of the idea that, obviously, the workplace is supposed to change and it should be your sexual harasser who gets frog-marched off the premises if this is really proven against him. John, I think that's such an interesting point about... Trump revealing um, a fissure in his bond with working class voters and supporters. But I also wonder if that's ever been a real bond with women as well as men. I mean, we've seen his huge lead among non-college educated men and white men generally, but we don't see the same kind of, you know, huge support from women, right? From non-college women. We do. From No, no. I mean, I think he well, he does better certainly with non-college women than he does with college educated women. Um, And I'm I'm I guess my only point was not so much that he's going to lose, you know, a group that he was killing it with, but that it just it's the first break. You would think for a guy who doesn't have a history of working in that world despite the fact that his children made it a part of their uh, talking about him in his convention about the fact that he he was more interested in the people who worked on the work site than the MBAs if he knew if that were if that were true in his bones 
his reaction to this would have been different. Well, you know, I, I'm going to say a point in favor of Donald Trump, which he, is that he does have a history in the Trump organization of putting women into positions of authority and unusual positions of authority in the construction world um, that he deserves some credit for. But I, I think it's actually not the first Fisher, John. Um, if you think back to what he talked about in terms of whether wages were too high or too low in his initial discussion about minimum wage, he has he, this actually an area in which he's shown a capacity to grow because his initial point was wages are actually too high and we don't need a minimum wage or it should be up to states or something. And he has evolved on that. One could imagine his him kind of getting religion and evolving on issues of sexual harassment. That does not change his basic situation, which is he is in some uh, a deep, deep trough with women. It's something like 76% negative of views among women. And women are, let us point out, 53% of the electorate. So, Emily, you wrote interesting things this week about the role of gender in the campaign and whether her gender was a, a positive or a negative for Hillary Clinton and the challenges that she faces. And but but it kind of strikes me uh, in this campaign, given the state of the demographic balance of the voting population, I kind of think as much as it's a challenge to run as a woman, it, Hillary Clinton, it's a net positive for her. Do you disagree? I think that it should be a net positive for her. But I wonder whether Hillary Clinton's feminism, and, and I mean both what she says, which I actually think is like straight up down the line liberal feminism generally, but also the complicated package she presents is tricky for a lot of women. I mean, they're talking about the fact that she came to us first as a first lady, so she doesn't seem self-made. To me, this is wrapped up in a thesis from Grants Frank Ruta and Amy Sullivan of a couple months ago where they pointed out that Clinton is like a first-generation women's movement kind of Moses figure. In contrast to Obama, who's second-generation Joshua. And usually when you're Moses, you don't get to go to the promised land because you just, like, are caring too much with you, and and people need a new leader. They need a kind of fresh face. And so um, I wonder if Hillary Clinton is just carrying too much baggage. But what do you think? Now that we're post-convention and we had a lot of, like, women— uplift, teary-eyed moments for me, I will say personally. Do you feel like we're over that hump with her and that, yes, she's going to, you know, benefit and women are really going to, like, thrill to her candidacy? You mean thrill to her candidacy, period, or thrill to her candidacy because they feel a gender connection? Well, this is the thing about Hillary Clinton. It's got to be both if they're going to, like, get out there and campaign for her. And yet I think people have a lot of reservations about her whole candidacy, even if they're excited about a woman as president or they feel like, yeah, she's a woman. But anyway, what, what do you how do you guys think that's playing out? I I have to say um, I was in the hall on Thursday night. And when I saw um, Hillary Clinton in this kind of lingering embrace with her daughter and uh saw that moment. And I hearkened back to the time in 2000 when my then five-year-old daughter um, looked up at me and said, okay, mommy, so how many women have been president? And I had to break the news to her that the answer was um, zero, which was not what she expected. I think that this is a moment that however much baggage Hillary Clinton is carrying and uh, it is a lot, and she has packed a lot of it herself. And as we saw this week, she continues to pack it. It is still a moment that people will 
and women voters in particular, that is, a, as I said before, I think a net plus for her. Even if there are white men who um, are less than thrilled with Hillary Clinton, I'd point out that she was the one who did better than Barack Obama with that same group eight years ago, which suggests that their issue is not necessarily a gender-based, can't imagine the notion of a woman uh, with her figure on the finger on the um, nuclear trigger here. The one that we're, that the country is having a hard time imagining with his finger on the nuclear button is actually the guy in the race, not True, the woman. True, although they don't trust her. I mean, how much does sure. that factor in here, John? What, trust in her candidacy? Yeah. Or trust or in whatever. her gender? Yeah, well, I uh, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but you look at her numbers now with white men, especially um, white men who are not college graduates, yeah. and they don't want anything to do with her. And, you know, well, she's... They haven't wanted anything to do with Democrats for a while. So Democrats always lose white non-college men. But isn't she uh, behind where Obama where and Kerry were. were with those folks? Yeah. Yeah. But you've got, I mean, so uh, let me step back. I, I, I'm fascinated by the extent to which for non-college white men, the ascension of a woman is how that is received. So that's the question you're getting at. But the, what makes it fuzzy is they have traditional reluctance to Democrats. I mean, traditional meaning in the modern age, uh, post, you know, FDR. And, and so in the last few elections, secondarily, they've got a candidate in Donald Trump who they affirmatively like. So there's that'll cloud things up. So I don't know how much of it is that she represents something particularly un unappealing. I mean, obviously, for some, she does. But is is that what's responsible for the difference between the their feelings about her and Obama? Or is it Trump that's represented? And is her evident unappealingness to this demographic gender related in right, some way. Right, it exactly. was not gender. I mean, if you yeah. look at their response to her and to Barack Obama during the primary campaign in 2008, it was clear that whatever their reluctance might have been to support a woman, it was exceeded by their reluctance to support an African-American. So, hey. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to um, write that down as progress. So what interests me, by the way, while we're on that constituency, uh, is obviously the point is not to win among that uh, group of voters, but to just keep the margin small. And that's what they've been working at so hard this last week is to say, basically, you think he works, you think he's thinking about you? Well, uh, actually, in the way he com he runs his businesses, he's making his clothes overseas, he's st stiffing small contractors. This is exactly what Hubert Humphrey did in 1968 against George Wallace as he went up to the Midwest and said, he says he's your working person, you know, the working people's candidate. Uh -uh. He's a union buster. People who work in Alabama have $1,000 less a year in take-home pay. He's not on your side. Of course, unions at the time through which you could pass this message were 25% of the workforce. They're closer to 10 now. But And not just to the, – the goal for Democrats is not just to reduce that margin as much as possible, but to increase the margin among women, uh, particularly among single women, particularly among younger women, which is why I think – if I were the Clinton campaign, I would be spending some time highlighting his comments about sexual harassment in the workplace. Yeah, I would say that he scripted a negative ad against himself, which truly we will be viewing. You know, by the way, obviously, I think this has been said, but having just gotten off the phone to somebody uh, in the Clinton campaign, in terms of 
your point, Ruth, what both of you are saying is using his actual comments. They have to keep using his actual comments, said this person uh, from the Clinton campaign, because they found in focus groups when you just re- when you just characterize what he said, nobody believes what he said. Uh, so you have, <laughs> you have to, to actually to his use voice his actual and see his comments. lovely face. Yeah, Donald yeah. Trump didn't supplying. say that, did he? Right, exactly. No, he supplies all the ammunition. All right, um, let's end that topic there. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Our third topic, voting rights, seemed to have taken a kind of definitive turn in the last few weeks. We got a big decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. This is the conservative federal appeals court that's in charge of Texas and a couple of other southern states. And they um, are going to make it really hard for Texas to fully implement its restrictive voter ID law. This is a law that passed in 2011 that, you know, pretty famously restricts the kind of ID you can use in a way that was, according to the plaintiffs in this lawsuit, going to disproportionately affect African-American and Hispanic voters. The Fifth Circuit agreed with that, wasn't ready to say that this discrimination was intentional, stopped short of that finding, sent that one back to the district court, but did agree that Texas needs to do something to modify access to ID so more people can vote. And then kind of similarly on the Fourth Circuit, the another court of appeals, that court struck down key parts of a North Carolina law that the Republican legislature passed in 2013. This was a law that imposed voter ID requirements, also reduced early voting, and made it harder for new voters to register. And one of the things that was... Oh, and I should quickly say that we also have court opinions um, striking down or making it harder for states to implement voter ID and other voter restrictions in Kansas and Wisconsin and I think maybe also South Dakota. It was like a super busy time period. Okay, so one of the things that really interests me about this legal landscape, you know, dial back a few years, we had this huge Supreme Court decision in a case called Shelby County, which said that, you know, we were going to essentially get rid of the front line of defense against diluting the power of Black and Hispanic voters. That was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which said that a whole bunch of states, mostly in the South, had to get pre-approval from the Justice Department before they could change voting laws in small and large ways. So after that Supreme Court opinion, there was a rush on the part of a bunch of um, states controlled by Republicans to impose pretty strict rules that were going to cut back on um, voting generally, making it harder for people to register. They're taking away these early voting days. They're shutting down polling places. They're putting in more voting ID restrictions. And they did it in the name of preventing voter fraud. So what we're seeing in this latest batch of court decisions is a refusal to go along with that justification. Turns out there's almost, I mean, there's such minimal evidence of voting fraud in this country of in-person at the ballot voting fraud that it's very hard to imagine that's really what the state's had in mind. And these courts are kind of refusing to fall for that pretext. Um, 
Ruth, does that seem to you like a really significant shift here that could, in the end, cut back nationwide on these kinds of restrictive voting laws? Um, Absolutely. I I think it was a very important week in voting rights. There was a lot of discussion after the Supreme Court's ruling in the Shelby County case about the dismantling and evisceration of the Voting Rights Act. And it was going to be turned into this toothless kind of invocation of the importance of voting rights without actually a way to protect them in reality. And this is not to defend the Shelby County decision or to say that having some advanced Justice Department review would not be helpful and important because, for example, we saw in North Carolina literally the day after the Shelby County ruling, the North Carolina legislature moved to put in way more restrictions on voting rights than they would have been able to do previously. But it does suggest that the Voting Rights Act, with the remaining section, continues to have some teeth and teeth that are being applied by both Republican-appointed judges and Democratic-appointed judges, all of whom are finding that in the cost-benefit analysis of the risk of with the phantom risk, really, of voter fraud compared to the real-world cost of shortening voting dates or eliminating early registration or most particularly requiring very strict voter ID rules, that the cost-benefit analysis um, should favor more voting, not less voting, that fraud is not a real threat. And I think this both is an important real-world difference in this election and an important change for us in elections going forward. The um, And just to bring this back to the point Ruth flicked at earlier is that this has a real-world applicability literally t- today, yes, and yesterday, when Donald Trump claims the that voter fraud is going to be uh, rampant and therefore rig the election against him, you have now – Judges saying basically the evidence for voter fraud. I mean, when he says that, he's obviously pinging a uh, fear uh, among on the right that this is rampant. And 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 so he's actually that's a move to unity for him. I mean, he's getting trying to get everybody on a familiar songbook But for judges to say, actually, it's not as big a deal as you have been saying in the very week that he's playing that card um, is interesting because it you know, they're, the judges are assessing the actual facts uh, in, a, in a, something other than the court of public opinion. Yeah, I, exactly. And one of the things that's so interesting to me about this assessing of the actual facts is that it wasn't super obvious that this was what courts were supposed to do before the Supreme Court's opinion in the big abortion case out of Texas at the end of June. Because if you remember that case, and a couple people, including Mark Stern at Slate, have written really well on this, but that case was also about this pretextual justification for law is supposed to be, you know, making women safer to shut down lots of abortion clinics. In fact, the scientific findings about the minimal risk that abortion poses given its low rate of complications and the way in which these state regulations were not actually going to protect women's health, those facts were really clear. But the Texas legislature had chosen to essentially um, not care about facts and pretend that there were a different set of facts that were reality. And there was this question that the Fifth Circuit, um, the same court that ruled against this voter ID wrong, a question that it got wrong in the abortion context. It said, you know what, if the legislature says those are the facts, 
we're not going to look in that black box. That's good enough for us. Any rational justification for this law is enough. And the Supreme Court said, no, when you're talking about people's access to a constitutional right, we can't end the inquiry with just whatever the legislature said. And so it strikes me that we're in this moment where judges looking at evidence seems like it should be totally obvious, but it's become politically freighted. The Supreme Court came up with the right answer, but you could almost argue that there's like um, a new judicial activism here, or maybe that's very unfair. We don't want to tar it with with that label, which is sometimes used as a pejorative, but you have judges kind of stepping in as arbiters standing up for facts in the face of legislatures that are pretending that, you know, voter fraud is a real thing when it's not. So, Emily, you took the analogy to abortion right out of my mouth um, because (laughs) and so therefore, I think it's a brilliant analogy. And uh, so because after the Supreme Court um, refused the invitation to overturn Roe v. Wade 20 something years ago, it said it was going to look at abortion restrictions based on an undue burden standard. And it wasn't clear whether that standard was going to be was going to allow enormous amounts of restrictions and on abortion going forward or whether there it was going to have some teeth in it. The Supreme Court told us this year that actually it was going to have some teeth in it. Same with Shelby County. We didn't understand whether there was going to be much force remaining in the um, Voting Rights Act after Shelby County. Uh, We're learning from lower court judges, I guess we'll eventually learn from the Supreme Court, that it does retain some force. But I'm going to push back really strongly on your suggestion that this is an example of activist judging. I think this is an example of judges at the Supreme Court in the, (laughs) yes, once again, took the words out of my mouth. Judges are not supposed to be ignorant of facts or disregard facts. They're supposed to look at the factual record before them. That's not activism. That's judging. Same thing in these voting rights cases. So now it's time for you to confess error, Emily, by using the word activist. I confess error. Okay. I I knew you would. um, Well, I was flirting with that idea because in some ways it's so crazy, right? Of course judges should look at evidence. And yet it was kind of up for grabs in both of these contexts. So here's another thing I was playing with. One of the really tricky boxes that the Supreme Court has gotten itself into is this notion that it can address bias or dilution of power in the voting context if it's based on race, since that's what's addressed by the Voting Rights Act, but not if it's based on political partisanship. So in the gerrymandering context, for example, where state legislatures usually redraw lines, if they draw lines in a way that makes it difficult for Black or Hispanic voters to elect the the candidate they might want, then that's not okay. But if it seems like all the legislature is doing is breaking up all the Democrats, well, that's that is totally fine to do. And reading the North Carolina and Texas opinions this week, especially the North Carolina, the Fourth Circuit opinion, refuses to kind of fall for the idea that all the Republicans are doing here is just making it easier for them to win by making it harder for Democrats to vote. And essentially, this um, quite forceful opinion by Judge Diana Motz, who's a Bill Clinton appointee, she says, wait a second, you know, over and over again, we see that the people affected here disproportionately are Black and Hispanic. And so we're not going to accept the state's explanation that it only cares about those voters because they're Democrats. And we don't care if there's a smoking gun here, you know, saying, like, let's make it harder for black people to vote. We're we're not going to let the political persuasion of these voters blind us to the fact that as a group, they are being discriminated against. 
What do, what do you think about that interplay, Ruth? I mean, it, it's a question that's certainly not settled, and you can kind of look at it either one way or the other. Well, um, two things. One is that um, it's very difficult to tweeze apart partisanship and race in voting because African-American voters, much to the consternation of the Republican Party, have voted and do vote so disproportionately for Democrats. However, point number two, in the case of North Carolina, the North Carolina legislature made the judge's decision that much easier by being very explicit in their analysis. They had commissioned, if I recall the opinion correctly, they had commissioned an analysis that was specifically racially based of how these provisions that they were undoing, what racial implications they would have. So when you do that, you got the Fourth Circuit saying not just that these changes had a disproportionate impact on African-American voters, but they were intended to have a disproportionate impact on African-American voters. You won't always have evidence that is um, so so magnificently clear. Yes, Mara, next time you're just smart enough to ask about Democrats instead of black people and you save yourself from that, um, that misstep. You know, it uh, just occurred to me while you're having this conversation that that the argument Donald Trump is laying here that the election will be rigged kind of falls apart if in the end, if if it's true that he loses and he start, tries to claim that, if he loses lots of Midwestern, if he loses Ohio and New Hampshire and Colorado, states that don't have a history of even even don't even have claims of voter fraud of the kind that you're that are talked about in South Carolina and <laughs> North Carolina, difficult. then it's going to be that's going to be even harder for him to claim. I mean, not that facts have gotten in the way of some of his claims, but <laughs> um, but I think that that just occurs to me that that a lot of the claims of voter fraud are, take place in states that aren't battleground. I mean, I guess I don't know. Maybe we'll see if it we'll see, because as I'm saying that, I'm thinking about the district in Pennsylvania, which when you talk to Republicans in Pennsylvania, say, yes, there are parts of Pennsylvania where you will get 100 percent of the vote for the Democrat. That's actually not fraud. There are others who will say that's a sign of fraud. So I guess you can claim it anywhere. I, I think that the the belief among um, certain parts of the Republican Party and the electorate in the existence of voter fraud, it is like the the tooth fairy. Um, there, there is just no dissuading children of a certain age from believing in the tooth fairy or Santa Claus. And uh, same is true for voter fraud. It, it just it reality does not change the conviction. Isn't it a question of magnitude? In other words, there are examples of voter fraud. It's just a question of whether the fraud is big enough to, to sway entire yeah, elections. Yeah, but if you really insist, then you just say that, well, most of it's not reported. It still happens all the time. We just don't have yeah. records of it, which yeah, is yeah. like a favorite, a new, a relatively recent there, there, Donald Trump method, right? And like, oh, these FBI data is wrong. Like, you just kind of disbelieve facts that you uh, Interestingly, like. the, the risk of voter fraud happens to be in absentee voting, which is not a— um, a Democrat favoring or African American favoring method of voting, mm-hmm. um, which is precisely where Republican controlled legislatures have not been going to reduce the possibility of fraud. Right. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. 
Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Um, when you guys are, where are you going to be? On your back porches in your, I hope, August vacation settings, feeling the summer breeze as you listen to the ocean in the background or the lake. I don't know, wherever your getaway is or if you're going to be in D.C. all summer as you're drinking away, <laughs> trying to, you know, make yourself feel better about working. What will you be chattering about this weekend, John Dickerson? I'm not uh, chattering about anything. You don't get any anything. vacation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I shouldn't have even I'm brought just, that up in your I was irritated presence. by that whole long description <laughs> of all the places people could be vacationing. No rest for the Dickerson. Yeah. Maybe Ruth gets a vacation. Okay. Uh, As you so are since I'm not getting, <laughs> Since I'm not getting any vacation... Um, I, so I did a an experiment in 2012 uh, that, that was really fruitful, and so I'm going to try it again, which is in 2012, do you remember when uh, there was a period where people said, how can there be any undecided voters? I mean, by that period in the race, you know, uh, like everything was known about Barack Obama or, and, and Mitt Romney. So how could people have been confused about their choice? That was There was a lot of pieces written about that. And so I said, well, to those of you out there who are undecided voters, write in and let me know why you're undecided and what your thinking is. So in this election, there are more undecided voters because there are people who are uh, unhappy with both choices. So if you are out there and you are still uncertain about which of the two candidates to pick, uh, send me an email and tell me about yourself at slatepolitics at gmail.com. And uh, it'll help me understand this election a little better. It was so useful in 2012. I am I am hoping for that level of usefulness. So if people are supporting again. Gary Johnson or Jill Stein, do you want to hear from them? This is a great question. I think I definitely want to hear from them. And by undecided, I uh, you, you, you quite rightly correct me. Um, what I mean is undecided between the two major party candidates, which means if you are supporting a third party candidate or are thinking about supporting a third party candidate, that's really helpful too in uh, thinking about the electorate. All right. John wants to hear from you. Ruth, maybe you get to go on vacation. I hope you get to drink in any case. Uh, indeed, I am going to be doing both. And my cocktail chatter is directly related to my vacation because my family and I are going to our favorite place on earth on Saturday, which is Wyoming. And um, we will be going to both Yellowstone and Grand Tetons National Ooh, awesome. Parks. Oh, that's great. Sorry, John, um, which I highly recommend to yeah, all GabFest listeners and to all Dickersons. Um, and so my cocktail chatter is not just um, to um, rub John Dickerson's <laughs> nose in my family vacation, but to note that on August 25th, it is going to be the 100th anniversary of the magnificent National Park Service. And to thank, um, as John Dickerson would want me to, several presidents yeah. uh, involved in the national parks. I'm now moving from cocktail chatter to annoying parental uh, fun facts. Yellowstone National Park under Ulysses S. Grant in 1872 is the oldest national park. Teddy Roosevelt, imagine a president who could take two weeks to go camping in Yellowstone uh, as he did while president, is credited with sort of furthering the national parks. But Woodrow Wilson, not, uh, not a president that we've been giving much praise to now, but he was president on 1916, August 25th, during the creation of the national parks. We now have 58 of them, and those are all my fun facts about them. That was excellent. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm in Maine drinking away when I'm not talking to you guys. Um, let's see. I have a quick 
retraction apology. I don't know quite what to call it. I said something kind of nutty last week. What did I say about like calling on people to hack into the IRS to release Trump's tax returns? I don't know if I actually said that, but I certainly flirted with that idea. Well, it, after you had also denounced Trump. Yes. Flirting with uh, <laughs> saying the Russian Russians should do that. Yeah, I got some hypocrisy award, which I thought you guys had sufficiently called me on on the show, but apparently not. Instantaneously. I yeah. know, right? But apparently it was a slow week at the Daily Caller, and they have chided me for um, my hypocrisy, inconsistency, bad judgment. What else should we say? I mean, it was just kind of just dumb. I thought you copped to it immediately. I thought I did, too. But anyway, I copped to it again. If you're still worried, and if you were out there and you were thinking of hacking into the IRS, please don't on my behalf. However, let's keep the focus where it should be, which is that Donald Trump really should release his tax returns. All right, on to more interesting cocktail chatter. I'm reading this week The Girls by Emma Klein, which is, I wouldn't call it a beach read exactly because it's kind of creepy and disturbing, but it's enthralling. So I recommend it, and we are talking about it on the Slate Audio Book Club in September. I don't think I'm actually on that panel, but I'm totally excited to listen to the discussion because it's the kind of book that one wants to chew over after you've finished reading it. So anyway, Emma Klein's The Girls. Check it out if um, you're looking for a good August or September read. And that's our show. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply, and our beloved GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest with lots of links. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter handle at Slate GabFest. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the show in iTunes and leave us a comment and review us. That is supposed to help us out a lot, and we would really appreciate it if you would do that. And you can search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Ruth Marcus, thanks so much for joining us. We'll be with you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.